0: Welcome to the Education Gadfly Show. I'm your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Today, Crystal McQueen-Taylor joins us to discuss the battle royale to lift the charter school cap in New York City. Then, on the Research Minute, Amber looks at the effects of closing and restarting low-performing schools as charter schools in New Orleans and Baton Rouge. All this on the Education Gadfly
1: Show. This is the Education Gadfly Show.
0: Sometimes my blog posts have math in them, I subtract, sometimes I multiply, come on. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at fordhaminstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Crystal McQueen-Taylor. Crystal, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Mike. Crystal is the Executive Director of Students First New York. Uh, She began her career as a classroom teacher and then led the New York City Teaching Fellows, which is the largest alternative teacher certification program in the country. I don't think I knew that, but that does make sense. Uh, She's also served as a regional senior director for Uncommon Schools, which is a high-performing charter school network. You have done so many of the cool things in education reform, (laughs) and it's uh, great to have you here.
2: Yeah, it's it's been a ride.
0: I bet it has been. Uh, and then joining us, as always, my co-host, David Griffith. David, how's it going?
1: Hey, Mike. It's going well. I, I will say I've done one debatably cool thing in education reform, so I feel overmatched here as usual.
2: <laughs> Hold on. Now, David, that makes
0: me think you're not counting Fordham on that Oh,
1: list. right. There it is. That's right. Uh, okay. <laughs>
0: think tanks are super cool. Come my, on. my bad.
1: I almost forgot. All right.
0: Well, you're referring to your stint at a charter school in D.C., as I <laughs> but but unlike uncommon, which is uncommonly high quality, yours was, uh, well, it was uncommon in that uh, in the, the very high quality D.C. charter market, you actually worked at a terrible charter school. Yep, yep. I have a nose for trouble. You do indeed. Well, you learn from it, and you pick the best education policy think tank in the country after that. So there you go. Hey, we are here to talk about New York because there's a big debate yet again around charter schools. Let's talk about that in Ed Reform Update. All right, Crystal, when you uh, are in the middle of this fight, I thought our national audience would be curious to know what is happening in New York around the charter school cap debate and what the prospects look like. And and maybe we can talk
2: a little bit about the politics. So catch us up. Yeah, so we are in the middle of a dogfight right now um, in New York. The budget is expected. If they're on time, April 1st, we'll get it April 1st-ish, probably, given uh, precedent with New York State. But the governor really set the tone for this argument, this fight, this session with her executive budget that came out um, in January, where she put two pretty bold proposals in there to, one, remove the regional cap um, on New York City charter schools. So there are there are 460 charter schools available in New York State overall, but there was a subcap that was put in place in New York City, and that subcap was met back in 2019. We're now going on year four. No new charter operators have been able to open up charter schools. In that time, there are 11 operators that have been conditionally approved, meaning that they basically went through the full authorization process and were given the stamp of approval, but because there were no charters available they could not get their charter. And anyone who's been on that, that school side, I, I, as I was when I was in uncommon schools, those applications to put together to, and to put a high quality application that's actually going to be approved in a state like New York, where there's a pretty high bar for authorization. It, it's, a, it's a labor of love. <laughs> um, it's a very intense process. And the fact that those schools went through that had a community who were eagerly awaiting those seats to be available there for their kids, and those schools have not been able to open is quite frankly a tragedy. The second proposal that's in there that I really think is a common fix, sense fix to the education law in New York um, is to revive zombie charter schools. And zombie is a terrible name that we have in New York, but it's basically charters that were once issued that have since closed for a variety of reasons. You know, it's part of like the grand bargain with charter schools. You get more flexibility with for increased accountability. And, but those charters are still counting towards the number of, of the cap on the charter schools in New York State. And there's precedent for this, like food vendors, taxi medallions, like when that medallion or that vendor license is no longer in play, it goes back into the pool. And this, I think that this is a common sense fix um, to the law. And there are members in New York State, in the Assembly and the Senate, who are supportive of charter schools, either because we have members in the Assembly who are actually charter parents, we have four charter parent Assembly members, the most that we've ever had, or members who have particularly throughout the pandemic have just seen that there's a real need for more high-quality public school options. They have families who are coming to them in the height of the pandemic, desperate for options. And the options that parents were looking for were often charter schools. And so we do have growing support. But I think in New York, a blue state, an increasingly left-leaning blue state, charter schools have just been pegged as this political hot potato. And it's been it's become a pretty hostile place to be a supporter for high-quality schools, which is crazy to me, given... The demographic of the students that are served in New York State, 90% of students are Black and Latino who attend New York State, uh, New York charter schools. 80% of those students receive free and reduced price lunch. And these are the, exactly the demographics of students that we should want to have increased opportunities, particularly public school opportunities. And I think there are a variety of, you know, circumstances in New York that make it difficult, but particularly the teachers union has been aggressively attacking charter schools and attacking members um, who are supportive of charter schools, and largely parent voice has really been been muted in this fight. All of the arguments against charter schools are pretty outdated. The misrepresentations, the downright lies, and totally neglects what families are experiencing in Brooklyn, in Brownsville, in, in the South Bronx about, you know, the choices that they have to make about their kids education and what that's going to mean for their futures. And that's why we felt the need to bring them out.
0: And look, New York City charter school sector is a very high quality, high performing sector, right? I mean, all the studies are showing very strong results here. So that's not an argument. So I, you know, watching from afar, it looks like the unions are making their normal arguments, which is, oh, this is going to take money away from the public schools. On top of that you have this dynamic where there has been this huge enrollment decline in New York City like other big cities coming out of the pandemic fewer immigrant students coming in in New York City more people leaving New York City so has that become a big flashpoint as well is that is that the the context that's making this particularly tough this time around
2: I think that the funding piece always is like argument one, two and three. I think in New York, we're just so accustomed to existing in scarcity that it's always zero sum, right? But in New York, it doesn't really make sense the way that funding flows. Funding follows a student. That's just the way that our per pupil funding formula works. And so it's not necessarily taking resources away from the district schools if they're not serving that child anymore. But I do think the complication around enrollment does make the issue particularly a sore spot. I think the thing that, you know, I continue to reinforce in the enrollment issue is that we still have a quality issue in New York. Even in a time where we have fewer K-12 students, we have a plethora of underperforming schools. And this is exactly the time where we should really be looking through our public education system with a fine tooth comb. And making sure that we have the number of high-quality seats in the district is actually equivalent to the number of students. And that's not the case. Like, we have communities that they're single-digit proficiency in some schools still. And that's unacceptable. There's no reason why we should have that in 2023 um, in New York, where we we do have high-quality options. And the other piece here is that, you know, the charter cap is locking out opportunities for new operators, for innovation. For, you know, operators who are running community-based organizations and have been successful in that and want to be able to expand to K-12 programming. The opportunity for leaders of color who actually, from the communities that they want to serve and are seeing a gap there, and they want to be able to open up schools or schools that want to serve specialized student populations. I think the enrollment pieces make it complicated, but I don't think it negates the argument that we still need more high-quality options in New York City.
0: So. You've got the the, the governor came around, which was good. I mean, I think folks weren't quite sure where she was going to stand on this. Right. You're working on the legislature, of course, which is what really matters. But tell us about the mayor. What's happened to the mayor? I thought the mayor was a pro-charter person, was kind of moderate, was going to push back against some of these interests. But again, from afar, it looks like maybe he got soft on charter schools. What's
2: going on? I don't think that he's quite gotten soft. I think he is still a charter supporter. I talk to the mayor often about these issues, and he has been supportive. I think the main thing that has come up recently is around tin, what we call Tin Cup Day in New York City, or New York State, where all of the local governments um, go up to Albany to talk about their budget requests. And
0: <laughs> Do they call it the Tin Cup Day? I love that.
2: <laughs> yeah, the, it's, it's called the Tin Cup Day. And so... On CUP Day, local governments go and they ask for money, right? And so that was what he was doing. He was asking for funding for New York City for initiatives that are in the governor's budget. But he clarified after that, uh, after the but that budget hearing, that he's supportive of charter schools. He thinks that charter schools are part of his grand plan to scale up excellence in New York City because from his previous seats as senator. Um, And as Brooklyn Borough President, he has seen firsthand um, the impact that charter schools have had in New York City. And he's not ideological about this issue, which I think is not the case with some of our state representatives.
1: David,
0: you, you get in here. What's on your mind?
1: Well, I'm struggling to say anything that sounds fresh, Mike, or nuanced. I don't know. It's the purest example of what we're fighting for and what we're fighting against, I think, in you know education reform, right? We've got a policy that works exceptionally well in the place that we're talking about for disadvantaged kids, traditionally disadvantaged kids. And there's no good counterargument. There really isn't. New York can handle a lot more charters. It is full of the human capital it takes to, to make that happen in a good way there's a huge need. Transportation is comparatively speaking less of an issue than it is, you know, in some places. All these, all these caveats that we we, you know, sort of inject sometimes when we're trying to make the market work in other places don't really apply to New York City. It's a fight and there's no way forward but through. Those are my thoughts.
0: No, look, it's it's true. I mean, again, you look at it from a national perspective, you say, okay. Where uh, do we need more charter schools? We want to look at a place where the uh, where the charter sector is high quality, where there's enough funding to do high quality charter schools, as David says, where the human capital is there,
1: where there's comparatively low penetration, like
0: right? Where there's actually not that high of a percentage of kids already in charter schools. and New York is right here at the top of the list. And of course, it's it's there because advocates like Crystal, you all have to fight this fight every few years around this cap. I mean, we could have a debate about whether the cap's been helpful, maybe on some quality issues. Maybe it it has at times, right? But it is clearly holding back this sector from being as large and serving uh, as many kids and having the impact it could have. And like David said, for no good reason. Are you feeling optimistic, Crystal? How's this going to come out?
2: I'm asked this question often, and my answer is always the same. I have to remain optimistic because if I didn't have some sense of optimism, I would have to quit my job. There's a ton of skepticism to go around, I think. But but on the serious side, I, I am optimistic for a couple of reasons. One, we know that the grassroots support is there. We've seen it time and time again. We've seen it in polling. We did a poll back in 2021 that showed very strong support for, for charter schools and growth. d did a poll back in early February, I believe, that also showed, uh, you know, overwhelming support for charter schools and charter growth. We did a parent rally earlier this week that we had over a thousand parents and staff and students turn out. You don't get that type of turnout unless there's real support there. And so I'm encouraged by that and that people are seeing that. People are listening to that. And I'm also encouraged that we are growing our ranks in terms about the number of supporters that we have in the legislature. We're not at a majority by any means of, of either house, but every year we're growing members because members are starting to see this issue from a much more logical standpoint than an ideological standpoint. I'm also encouraged by the governor setting the pace here, right? Like the governor said well, while she was on the campaign trail at a challenging point in the campaign that she would, that she would lift the charter cap. She delivered on that in her executive budget, and we fully expect that she is going to continue to push for that through as, as we go into the next phase of budget negotiations. And so I think we have some of the right ingredients for a win here, but we're going to have to work like hell for it.
0: All right. Well, we will leave it there. Crystal McQueen-Taylor of Students First New York, we are rooting for you and the other advocates there in New York and New York City. Maybe we can get back with you uh, later this spring, and, and I hope report some good news.
2: Thank you all so much. We appreciate all the good vibes. We're going to need it.
0: Great. Thanks so much, Crystal. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show.
3: Thanks, Mike.
0: So yeah, David was just all fired up there about charter schools and discovering that, you know, just because we have solid evidence that something works doesn't mean that politicians in blue states always follow the science. Shocking, really,
3: it is shocking. All this work we've been doing, whew, be nice if they listen to us.
1: I'm so glad I have you guys here to so hold my hand. <laughs> <laughs> Look,
0: it happens on the right as well. I mean, we know that. I don't think there's anybody involved in policy wonkery or any academic involved in policy research who doesn't understand that, uh, you know, even with the best of evidence at the end of the day, it's about politics, right? And uh, hey. We're a democracy, so it's better than the alternatives. Uh, you just got to keep making your case, and you got to also do the the work that you can do to bend the politics in the right direction. It was great to hear from Crystal. They're they're doing that. They're getting the moms and dads to Albany in this case, around uh, New York charter schools to rally uh, to lift the cap, and it's great. And especially when you think about those families, you know, they're already in charter schools. You know, they are really rallying so that more families can join them.
1: Mike, I'm actually a firm believer that policy bends towards evidence um, in the long run, or I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. So, all right,
3: good. (laughs) Way to go, David. I like that.
1: Yep. Good. That's right. All
0: right. Speaking of evidence, what you got for us this week on the Research Minute, Amber?
3: Ah, we got some strong evidence. New study out of the Economics of Education Review Journal. That is a pretty fancy journal. It's by Doug Harris and colleagues. It examines the effects of closing and restarting low-performing schools as charter schools in New Orleans and Baton Rouge. You guys seen this study yet?
0: I I have to. I I Doug is so prolific. Sometimes I can't I
1: can't remember.
0: Did we see this one?
1: Right. I feel like we've seen other studies.
0: Right. There was another closure study, but I don't think I know that I've seen the one about restarting as charters.
3: No, I I had not either. Um All right. So we know closing schools and restarting them as charter schools was actually, back in the day, one of the NCLB cascade of interventions. It was the one that, you know, was supposedly most heavy handed. Uh, I want to guess how many percent, uh, percentage of schools did that
0: nationally or
3: in Louisiana nationally. One percent. Oh, boy. You sure you didn't read the study? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was one percent of schools. Hey. Look, I've been Ooh, doing this
0: a long time, Amber. You
3: come have, on, come You on. have. Uh, but after Hurricane Katrina, uh, the state took over control. I think most of our listeners know this of nearly all of the city schools. The union contracts were torn up. The attendance zones were eliminated. All teachers were let go. They had to be rehired. And almost all of the schools were converted to charter schools. So this is uh, one place where we can look at this particular intervention pretty broadly. The schools could have gone from charter to charter or district to charter. Uh, They also look at closures and restarts in Baton Rouge um, as another um, place with similar context conditions as New Orleans, uh, but they had far fewer charters. I think only 11 charters, of which five had a restart and closure. Uh, New Orleans had 24. So they look at 2009 through 12 for the elementary schools and 2009 through 14 for the high schools. When the announcements occurred, they go back to 2006 for the baseline data. Uh, most of the schools were under purview of the state, except again, Baton Rouge had uh, some schools and they were under the purview of the school district. They use a match difference in differences design. They were able to satisfy the assumption of parallel trends. They also do a pooled OLS analysis with school fixed effects and a ton of covariates. They also match treated students to individual students within the comparison schools in another analysis to see how their results might differ. But basically they're calculating effects for students who attended the treated schools at the time of treatment results. The effects of the closures and restarts are generally positive in New Orleans. They report math scores only because the reading scores basically follow the same patterns and they're similar. So the effects on the math scores were 0.21 to 0.39 standard deviation for elementary school students in those treated schools. For high schools, it was basically based on ninth graders who tested in 10th grade. Uh, There were no clear effects on high school graduation or college entry in New Orleans. So they only really saw it on the test scores. However, in Baton Rouge high schools, the intervention actually reduced high school graduation rates by 11 to 15 percentage points. Then they do some mechanisms to figure out, you know, what's going on what's the mechanisms. And they find that the variation in test scores affects within and across cities is positively related to what do we think an increase in, we know, this and school level value added. So if they were going to bet, they were going to better schools, right?
2: Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good. Uh, That that was
0: a trick question. You know, uh, money, uh, teachers? No, Okay, yes,
3: value added. Yeah, of course. Value added, school level value added. Uh, The NOLA schools also were free from union constraints and had more flexibility while uh, Baton Rouge did not enjoy the same freedom. So they think maybe that had something to do with it. And they also think that in general, I guess other studies have showed that disruption of closures and restarts is more problematic at the high school level. Um, than, than the elementary level. So that's what I've got. Interesting. You know, I, I am always
0: wondering about the high school graduation results when we know that, of course, high school graduation standards can vary. Right. Right. So just a possibility. I mean, maybe that's not the case here, but is it possible that in the new the new carnation of these schools, they were trying to have higher standards for what it took to graduate than, than the old schools did? That is, I don't know seems to be at least something that's possible.
1: That's a huge effect though, Mike. Like 11 to 15 yeah. percentage points. points?
0: Yes. Right. Yes. No, I, I, yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot of kids not graduating. Absolutely.
1: That's not good. <laughs> that's my main comment. I feel like if we can't make some form of school closure work, some of the time we're in trouble, right? Because we're not really firing teachers and we don't really know how good the schools are going to be before they open, right? Or at least not not, not with a great deal of confidence. Uh, confidence, mm-hmm. You know, bureaucratic closure or market-based closure or call it whatever you want. But, you know, you, it's, that doesn't do a lot of good to just create new schools <laughs> um, unless you're also replacing bad schools with, with better well, schools. Well,
0: right. But didn't this one look specifically at closing and restarting the same school right yeah. and so the other model is over here on one side you're working on creating new schools and over here on the other side you're working on closing the bad schools but they're not the same schools necessarily right you might end up recycling some of the buildings but that that may be that seems to be i think uh, that there's strong evidence that those kinds of closures just closing low performing schools and having kids go to better schools that after some transition uh year or two that kids do better. So I don't know, maybe it's just this idea of a restart, you know, that you've just got to have just, just close it, just close it. And you got to have some other part of the organization that's, uh, you know, at, at a district level or an authorizer that's working on creating new school.
1: Well, so so did they really close or not? I guess that's what I'm trying to understand is what, what do we mean by restart? I mean, are all the, do, are all the staff Fired in this case, or or you know, let go.
3: That's what it said. All teachers were fired, let go. I'm assuming they had to go through a rehiring.
1: Okay, I mean, it sounds like it sounds like a closure. I I don't know. I guess I my assumption is that the building isn't the most important thing here, right? That it's more the
0: well, if you're trying to close in June and restart in August in the same place, I don't know that that's just a very different model than what we see in most of the charter sector.
1: Yes, that's certainly right.
0: You've got a startup team that's working a year or two ahead of time. They maybe roll out the school one grade at a time or a couple of grades at a time and build the school culture. I mean, I think those details matter, you know. So I, I don't know. I, I have been skeptical of these provisions. I mean, I just close it rather than trying to restart as a charter or let's try to, you know, restart with a new principal or let's, you know, pull the band-aid off and shut down the school. And, you know, ideally, if if you're in a place that's got extra capacity in terms of facilities, then you can have a facility sit empty for a year or two, not the end of the world. And then, you know, another school moves in and maybe they don't use it at full capacity at first as they're rolling out the school year by year. And then, you know, but within five or six years, it's a fully operational school again. I mean, that that costs some money, that costs some time, but that that may work better than I just, cause I, I'm always going to worry that is that new school as new as it really needs to be.
3: You mean in terms of the cult, is the culture carrying yeah, over? Yeah, the
0: culture, kind of... you know, is it a new group of kids? Is it a new group of, I mean, if it's, if you're trying to restart it and it's basically all the same kids, changing that culture is a whole lot different than a really new charter school that's recruiting kids citywide. And that's, you know, starting from
1: scratch. I agree. Is it all the same kids? I guess I'm just trying to understand which parts of the, of the, some of the same kids, probably. Yeah.
3: Some of the same kids. Some of the same kids. Yeah.
1: Okay. All right. Well, yeah, I agree then. I I think that's probably, yeah, not going to be a clean enough break. Yep. Okay. Not bad.
0: Not bad, Doug Harrison, folks. You know, next time I have a really good blog post, I'm going to ask myself, does this need to be a blog post or should I submit it, you know, into this econ journal instead? (laughs) I might give, I might give the econ journal a shot. I don't know. Okay, you do that, Mike. What do you think, bud? I
1: think there's no law against submitting, Mike.
0: (laughs) Sometimes my blog posts have math in them. I subtract. Sometimes I multiply. Come on. Yeah. It's just not enough. It's all good. All right. Good stuff, Amber. Thank you for that. Very interesting and important. But that is all the time we've got for this week. So until next week, I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education GapFly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at fordhaminstitute.org.